Hello, welcome to Under the Skin. This week's a two-parter with Professor Anil Seth. It was just so much information. He's just such a fantastic neuroscientist. We had to do it in two episodes. He's the Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at University of Sussex and the co-director of the Sackler Centre for Consciousness Science. His new book, Being You, The Real Science of Consciousness, is coming out in 2020. We all got to get it because it's going to be absolutely magnificent. We learned a great deal about neuroscience, the nature of self, the nature of reality. As the interview went on, as you might imagine, I kept probing, you know, nudging it towards spirituality, the Lord, all of that. And it actually went very well. And I think you're going to learn a lot from it and love it. I've got some things to promote to you now. I'm coming to your country, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Hold on a minute. Can Australia, New Zealand, Canada even get this podcast? New Zealand can, but Australia and Canada can. Right. So if you're in New Zealand, you're pirating this in some way. And if you're in Australia and Canada, hello. I'm coming to your country to do uh, Recovery Live in the new year. Tickets are on sale right now. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets. They'll see me in Australia next February and March. And if you want to be on my mailing list at russellbrand.com, why don't you be on it then? And you'll uh, be told new stuff in advance. You get sent like a special little video. I answer questions if you send them. You get access to all sorts of stuff. So sign up, please, to russellbrand.com. Check out my YouTube channel for more spiritual videos and clips from the podcast. Make sure to subscribe and get notified of new videos on YouTube. Follow me too on Twitter at Rusty Rockets, Instagram at Russell Brand, TikTok at Russell Brand. I love TikTok, don't I? Oh, tickety-tock. Oh, I love it. Oh, TikTok. And LinkedIn, Russell Brand. Here are some comments on the uh, Paul Dolan podcast uh, that we did last week. Oh, Paul Dolan, you're a cockney behavioralist. I loved Paul Dolan. He was absolutely fantastic, wasn't he? Drew Heyman agrees with me. It was great. Clap, 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 alien. Megan Metalcalf illustration. It was another good one. Got me thinking, inquisitive monocle face, it would be cool if you spoke more about voice stuff with that rada bloke, as that sounded well interesting. Yeah, let's get him on. Joe, he's lovely, and he Actually, I reckon he'd do it. Love your podcasts. Rebecca Adele. This was excellent. A very interesting listen. Thank you. Well, thanks all of you for saying those things digitally to me. Okay, so I think that's all the things I can say to you. Come and see me on that tour. Thank you for your wonderful messages on all platforms about my 17 years in recovery, granted to me by the numerous people that have helped me along this path to whom I'm very, very grateful. Even the people that I don't see anymore or talk to anymore, just because of the way life works and the way time passes, my gratitude extends a timeless tide across the galaxies of our limitless connections, which we now know are illusions, thanks to, well, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, Buddha himself, and of course, Anil Seth who from this in his uh, beautiful work as a neuroscientist covers that gear trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route yes that's that, that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology what's beneath the surface of people we admire of the ideas that define our time the history we are told and welcome to Russell Brand under the skin Professor Anil Seth, thank you so much for joining me on Under the Skin. 
Oh, thanks, Russell. It's a pleasure. You're an actual professor. You're a neuroscientist. You're a lecturer at Sussex University, which I happen to know for a fact is near Brighton, <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to Bournemouth now. That's the first thing I've learned already. And um, I, I'm a very... I'm very interested in learning more about the nature of consciousness from a neuroscientific perspective because uh, it's something I'm always banging on about and I feel that there could be an almighty chasm that you could help me to cross with actual rational scientific information. What is consciousness as far as we know? <laughs> That's an extremely sort of, it's a good place to start. It seems a simple place to start, but one of the things when thinking about approaching a phenomenon like consciousness in terms of science, uh, is how do we define it? And this is where things already get a bit tricky. In one sense, we all know what consciousness is. Consciousness is what goes away when you fall asleep into a dreamless sleep. It's certainly what goes away when you have general anesthesia, um, and it's what returns when you come around again after anesthesia. Uh, it's also, for each of us, the only thing that really matters. I mean, without consciousness, there, is, there would be no world, there would be no self, there would be nothing at all, just oblivion. So everything that we do, everything that we perceive, everything that we feel, we feel in the medium of conscious experiences. Every moral stance we take is only requires a moral stance in virtue of its effect on somebody or something's experience. So it's a hugely significant phenomenon. Um, but quite surprisingly, in neuroscience, it was sort of ostracized or excluded from consideration for, for many, many years because people didn't really know how to study it. And the essence of consciousness is that it's subjective. You know, I have my experience right now. I'm experiencing talking to you. I'm experiencing the, the feeling of the chair against my back. I'm experiencing um, the taste of the coffee I just drank. These are private subjective phenomena. We can't sort of take them out of my brain or body or mind and put them on a table and look at them together. And science typically works by doing that. We make measurements of things and we agree what the measurements are and then we can start to apply the scientific method. So that's been the, the challenge for a science of consciousness. But over the last 20 or 25 years there's been a rehabilitation of consciousness within neuroscience psychology just because it, it would be silly not to. I mean it is the central phenomenon of everybody's lives <laughs> and so we should think about it and study it. Yes. Um, you talked about general anaesthetic uh, here and in your uh, excellent TED talk, which I watched and I should mention, but although I'll mention these things elsewhere in the intro, um, you've, you had your previous book was uh, Being You, is that right? No, that's the new one. That's the new one that's coming the out new next one year. Coming out next year, yeah. The previous um, book was, um, which I have a copy for you as well, is, is The 30 Second Brain, um, which is a sort of collection of short vignettes about neuroscience and psychology. Um, written with a bunch of other people but yeah being new is is my sort of first long well long-ish exploration of really what it means to do a science of consciousness and what we can say about the experience of self and that's coming out next year assuming I get the edits done by January <laughs> you will I'm sure you will you seem so diligent um <clears throat> I feel this like um that uh, as um sort of materialism, rationalism and the uh, advance of scientific knowledge uh, continues, uh, there is often a, um, a an erosion of 
mystery necessarily because you could call it mystery or you could call it ignorance or unawareness but that but you see with the general anesthetic uh, um, example that you gave in your TED talk that when you have a general anesthetic that's it that's wipe out you're not there you are plunged into a, an experienceless nothingness um like that's distinct from sleep isn't it it's distinctive from sleep where there is you know where there are uh, dream states and they're sort of highly experiential completely you know because i love that in your talk you talk about reality is a hallucination we're all experiencing and our whole inner life completely alters when we're asleep and uh, even though of course it's the subject of much study um, dream analysis it's for me always remarkable because i have this fixation with psychedelics the nature of reality and that the, every one of us, well, the majority of us, go to sleep every night and experience these extraordinary personal myths. Um, what from like if general anaesthetic you cite somewhat as an example of the kind of chemical nature or physical nature of consciousness in that it can be shut down by anaesthetic. Um, what are the implications of? Uh, of brain activity and dreams and uh, and and maybe that will lead us to psychedelics yeah, oh, there's well. a yes exactly there's a lot in what you just just raised there but just to pick up on uh, on the anesthetic point the reason i sort of emphasize that is for me it really is a demonstration of of how intimately dependent consciousness is on on the brain and you can do a very simple thing general anesthetic is quite a simple thing in some ways it's a particular molecule it activates the brain or changes its physio physiology in ways that we're still trying to figure out and consciousness just goes reliably and for some times quite a prolonged period of time and it is it is absolutely not the same thing as sleep you know if you're i always think of it this way if you're asleep even if you're not dreaming you still have a sensation when you've woken up that some time has passed and it could have been a few minutes if it's a nap it could have been a few hours if you were really out uh, but it's somewhere within that ballpark. When you come around from general anesthesia, there was no sense of any intervening time at all. You know, you're gone and then you're back. And it could have been, you could have been out for five minutes or 50 years. From your point of view, from the perspective of you as a conscious agent, you were just not there at all. And you never get that sensation in sleep. And chemically, it's doing something very different. I mean, sleep is a normal state of the brain. In fact, there are many different states which we subsume under the general label of sleep uh, and we dream in different ways in different parts of sleep it's a very active process it's doing a lot of things for the brain uh, but general anesthesia is not a state that our brains enter into uh, naturally at all and so studying anesthesia firstly it's a window into what are the real necessary and sufficient conditions for consciousness in the brain uh, but it's also this, this it's definitely a distinct phenomena from sleep. So when you go to, if you have an operation and someone's giving you anesthesia, of course, the temptation from the anesthesiologist is to say, you'll just go to sleep for a while and then you'll wake up and you'll be fixed. But it's really not like that. If it was just sleep, you, you would be still responsive to stimuli. You wouldn't want to be just asleep on the operating table. No, no. And so, okay, so uh, in a sense, is the point that you're making about anesthetic that consciousness is fundamentally brain activity created by the brain empirically? I think that's the, a good starting point. I think off the bat, I want to acknowledge that I, I still am agnostic about the big 
metaphysical question of how consciousness fits into our large-scale understanding of what the universe is made of. And you get all these different philosophical positions. You have things like dualism, which goes back to Descartes and before, where the mind and, and conscious awareness are separate modes of existence, you know, what Descartes called res cogitans, the stuff of thought and of experience. And that's completely separate in dualism from physical stuff, the stuff that tables and chairs and, and brains are made out of. It's a very pro- it seems intuitively appealing, a, a perspective like that, because consciousness seems to be something very different from stuff that stuff is made of. Uh, but it's also very problematic position because if you divide the universe into two this way then it's really hard to figure out how the two aspects of the universe relate then you've got things like consciousness could be everywhere spread out in the universe like a thin layer of jam which is sort of panpsychism and then you've got idealism which is that actually consciousness is the only real thing that exists and the problem isn't how you get mind from matter but how you get matter from from mind Uh, so I think thinking of the brain as as the sort of material basis of consciousness, that's what you would call physicalism or materialism in philosophy. And for me, it's more of a practical strategy. Yeah, we we can... Physicalism is our best way of understanding the universe at large. I mean, we think of it in terms of atoms or quarks now or whatever. And and we have good theories of how material stuff behaves, how it does what it does. And we can already see that describing the universe that way we know that the brain is intimately related to consciousness. So it's more of an empirical strategy that, yeah, I mean, the brain is a hugely complex physical object. There's about 90 billion neurons. There's a thousand times more connections. It seems plausible that something that intricate, that complex, could do remarkable things. Consciousness might be one of the remarkable things that it can do. And let's figure out how. Mm. What about as in the physical world, as we uh, delve deeper into finer material components, we observe our previous understandings, understanding of the laws of thermodynamics altering, our, our understanding of time and space altering. When dealing with something you know that has ninety billion neurons times a thousand connections, is it a possibility that it exists at that layer of complexity and sort of, uh, if not undermines our understanding of physics in the way that sort of quantum physics has challenged previous physical understanding, at least exists in a kind of analogous space where it's very difficult to make assumptions, i.e., that the the matter preceded mind or matter preceded consciousness. Because, because of the complexity, like it would require, it would require a degree of assumption to 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 make either assertion, either assertion rather. Like for me to say, which is what I will say, as a sort of a religious spiritual person, that consciousness preceded matter, and that the brain is like there is such a thing as non-local consciousness, and the brain is receiving consciousness somehow by being in physical alignment with the frequencies and patterns that it can receive and that when a general anaesthetic is introduced it disrupts that pattern so consciousness can no longer be received like um like 
see these things. I'm aware of something I learned off Neil deGrasse Tyson where he went, um, you know, if you're arguing with someone about something and there's nothing you could say to that person that would make them change their mind, he brought it up when talking about the moon landings. He sort of said, like, is there anything you could say to someone who denies the moon landings or says the earth is flat that would make you change your mind? And if that person goes no, he says, well, then there's, <laughs> there's no point sort of arguing with them. But like when dealing with something as complex as the nature of consciousness and the nature of consciousness to an individual and the kind of animalistic assumptions we make around space and time because precisely as you illustrate so beautifully in your work it's something we receive in a sensory way is it worth being open to the possibility that consciousness may somehow exist outside like because you drew a line between our understanding of biology and life itself uh, biology and like the way that we can now see there's a mechanistic underpinning to say digestion that we would never have understood in medieval times or whatever it, it did are you how do you approach these kind of more like a sort of the reversal of that relationship yeah, I think you have to be. I, I certainly try to be a bit modest about this. That that you're absolutely right. That um, our intuitions about time, space, physics have, have changed radically a number of a number of times over the history of science and philosophy. And to be sure that we've got everything figured out now, and that and that it's just a case of working out with the tools and the concepts that we have available how consciousness depends on the brain. That's a little bit arrogant, I think. And so I, I don't want to I, I i i'm open to being persuaded that other ways of thinking about consciousness are possible uh but it's also true i think what what you also said is very important which is that because the brain is so complex our intuitions about what it might be capable of are also are also you know probably insufficient at the moment we're probably laboring under misapprehensions about how powerful these sorts of explanations can can be um, and you know, if I propose an explanation of consciousness that says it depends on activity, let's say in this particular area of the brain, in the prefrontal cortex, to take an example, it's not really a very satisfying explanation. It's just like, well, you've just said there's this area, and and that's where consciousness mm. happens. That's not very good, but that's a very very boring kind of biological explanation. Within this vast space of the interactions of billions of neurons, I think there are ways of constructing much more interesting uh, explanations of phenomena in, in consciousness. But when sort of weighing the merits and demerits of these, I think I would say again, more metaphysical ways of thinking about what consciousness is and how it fits into our understanding of the universe, um, I think it's okay. It's, well, it's, not, it's more than okay. I think it's necessary to leave a lot of possibilities open, but also to weigh up well which of these possibilities lend themselves to experimental testability because if uh, in the same way as you just said if there's nothing you can do to persuade somebody against the argument they already believe then what's the point um, one of the best ways of persuading somebody or certainly of persuading me that what i previously thought was wrong is to show an experiment which demonstrates that what i thought just doesn't fit with the way things are and a lot of these some, some frameworks, let's say panpsychism, for instance, this is the idea, I think is a little bit in line with what you said. This is an idea that consciousness is a sort of fundamental property of the universe with the same status of things like mass and energy and, and charge. And we as human beings instantiate consciousness in a particular way, but consciousness itself is fundamental to the universe. Now, if you, if you take that position, 
just by kind of act of taking that position, you no longer have to explain how consciousness emerges from anything else because it's already there. It's fundamental. But the problem with it is just not testable. There's nothing, no experiment that I can think of or that anybody else has yet proposed that I'm convinced by, which would sort of change my belief in the plausibility of that position. Whereas if there's another kind of expert, so for instance, you could say that that um, consciousness has this sort of status where it's instantiated by some quantum mechanics, something or other, um, which is an argument I'm very suspicious of because it usually comes down to this consciousness is mysterious and quantum mechanics is mysterious, so they must be related, which is, a, you know, I think, a kind of weak argument. But there could be an experiment you could do that. You know, you, you could say, okay, when you see this kind of phenomenon then there's some reportable uh, consciousness happening. But stuff has to be testable. And the history of science is just shown as that so often you know, in the history of life, which we were just talking about, too. You know, people thought that was super mysterious, that no explanation in terms of physics and chemistry could explain the difference between the living and the non-living. And you had this philosophy of vitalism that was very dominant in a lot of the 19th century. And people just thought, no, however rich and complex your explanation of biological mechanism is life is something special you need that elan vital that spark of life but of course you don't you just needed richer explanations within the existing frameworks of, of biology enriched by information theory enriched by genetics and suddenly we realize that firstly life is not just one thing and many different ways things can be alive or not alive or halfway in between when we think about viruses and or synthetically alive now so life is not just one thing, and then everything that is alive is alive in a slightly different way. I mean, we have different forms of metabolism, of reproduction, of homeostasis. And there's still a lot of things about life that are not understood, but this metaphysical sense of mystery that life is sort of escaping the remit of our materialistic tools, that's gone. And while I can't be sure that that's the case with, with consciousness... For me, it's a good it's a good pragmatic strategy. Let's go as far as we can, leaving ourselves open to the possibility that we won't get all the way. And if there is some explanatory residue left over at the end of end of it all, well, I think that residue will look different because of the materialist journey anyway. It's, I see how we chase the mystery into. Uh, uh, auxiliary spaces that are less and less accessible because in a sense the the mystery the the bio mystery that you just uh, unpacked for us is has been now we can ex explain and understand mechanistically th those ideas but the 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 problem or the mystery has migrated into the area of consciousness the experience of life itself and i i wonder um, Anil, what biases exist as a result of the type of experiments that we can do? You know, to, not to be reductive, but if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. That m m because materialism lends itself so well to experiment, and the idea, for example, of panpsychism or consciousness emerging from some realm inaccessible to our conscious experience. Like it's a sort of I don't quite know how to tackle this problem myself. Why should I? As obviously it's pretty bloody complex. But like, uh, <laughs> like um, that you know we are only going to look at it in the areas that where we can ask questions, where we can examine, where we can perform double blind experimentation. 
But this is a, a broader point. Like we understand, don't we, that there are limitations to our own ability to hold knowledge, to understand limitations to our intelligence, limitations to our sensory experience. And even what we know of the physical universe seems to be something akin to limitlessness in both directions into the micro and the macro. So aren't we consigned to having a limited understanding of what we term reality and, and even what we temporarily regard as rules, perhaps likely to eventually be diagnosed as more localised customs that temporarily were placeholders for true regulation and understanding. Yeah, I think there almost certainly are limitations to what we as as humans can understand. And there's a another of these philosophical positions like dualism and panpsychism and materialism is called mysterianism. And this is the idea that there is in fact a physical explanation for how consciousness happens, but we humans are intrinsically too stupid to ever know what it is. Even if it was presented to us by super smart aliens, we would just not understand it. Now, I mean, I think you have to reserve this as a possibility because it just follows. There are There are already things that uh, most of us, including me, certainly cannot understand, um, result of the recent election being one example. Uh, But there's plenty of things that nobody can understand. And if you look at other animals, and we might get onto this later, but I certainly think non-human animals have conscious experiences. But I would say certainly frogs do not understand uh, Newtonian physics or quantum mechanics or economics whereas some humans do. So if we are willing to say there are some things that some creatures cannot understand, mm. then yeah. it would be massively hubristic to think <laughs> that we humans can potentially understand everything. Yes. But then again, there are things... We don't know where to put the limits, right? There, there, there presumably are limits, but where those reside is not clear. And the fact that something seems mysterious and inexplicable now is a rather poor guide to whether it will be within the sphere of what we can potentially understand. You know, again, back to people thought life was probably beyond uh, what we could as humans understand, but we can now understand it. Um, ideas emerging from modern theoretical physics would have probably seemed in principle incomprehensible to some of our predecessors, but they're now comprehensible to at least some physicists. So it becomes, again, a bit of a pr- pragmatic thing. Yeah, there are, there are some things we probably will never understand because we have, we have brains, and brains are not infinitely powerful, infinitely knowledgeable, infinitely potent understanding machines. But to prematurely place consciousness within that domain of a species-specific ignorance is, I think, a bit akin to giving up. You know, let's, just, let's just find out. But you're also right that you, we probably don't have to ask for a science of consciousness to be useful and productive and enlightening it may not have to solve this big problem of how consciousness fits into the fabric of the universe in its entirety because again in physics i mean phys- physicists have made enormous progress on predicting understanding explaining and controlling the universe in various ways but no physicist really has a good answer to why the universe exists in the first place or even what matter really is so there are still deep metaphysical kind of lacunae at the center of physics what does uh, that mean lacunae and a vast 
vast space of emptiness is what I was hoping it means, but it's a bit of a guess. <laughs> a bit of a leap into the semantic dark. Um, and I think the same thing applies to, to consciousness. We don't have to solve this big problem. If we can get a good understanding of when conscious experience happens, what explains the properties that it has, how it manifests differently in different people and in different animals and what it's for, then we've done a lot of what science can ever hope to do. This precipitous space that you explain across scientific discipline is the... uh, This is what fascinates me because I feel awe there. I feel awe on the edge of those questions like what precedes Big Bang and when as it was recently been discovered that the um, way that the, the laws around expansion as we understood them have had to be continually updated and questioned and our understanding of time continually needs to be reevaluated. and as you say in your field of neuroscience it won't be particularly satisfactory to go oh it's a network of relationships between the cerebellum and the, 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 the oh, okay because it's only really exp- it describing the instantiation as opposed to some sense that there's a hidden procedure beneath it some sort of morphic field some magnetic force that sort of somehow where is this intelligence residing? This deep intelligence in nature that's present in our DNA, present in neuroscience, is regenerating cells or indeed uh, informing cells to function no further or replicate no further. It, like I feel like many of the metaphors, even in their sort of medieval bluntness, contain a sort of a central truth in them, that there is something that is to do with oneness, kindness and love that's kind of beyond our grasp. And my concern, and it's not a, excuse me, novel idea, I became, uh, someone explained how it was in uh, Hannah Arendt's Bear, that's bear. Just to let you know, <laughs> listeners, there's a very large dog. It's a large me. dog in here. Keeping that wasn't me, keeping me, um, yeah, <laughs> keeping me on point. <laughs> there's an Alsatian always at your heels, yeah. and he'll <laughs> should you stray off too much. It's a, well, for example, yeah. lacuna. I didn't read. You're the lucky you got con- away with that. <laughs> I know. I didn't read the terms and conditions closely <laughs> enough. There's a, a tiger in another room. Um, should it be required? Um, that. Um, oh man. The dog made such a sort of a deep gut roll. I just couldn't bear the idea that anyone would think that it was our abdomens. <laughs> good to clarify that. Yeah. Well, they may have been. They will never know, right? It's just a story That's about right. a dog. I mean, there are cameras, but even he's out of frame. So people have to come to their own conclusions. Mm. Um, the, in Hannah Arendt, she said that... Um, in sort of post-enlightenment rationalist thinking, the public sphere has been diminished by the uh, kind of, um, what do I want to say, a delegating of power to various institutions. And even when we're active, socially activated, we're sort of performing private roles in punk, in public. We don't have genuine civic agency. Like, And she sort of didn't... Um, say that as a consequence of even the politics of the last century and sort of obviously she wrote a lot about fascism and nazism and all of that like but you know something that was a couple of centuries earlier a 
a particular faith in materialism. And there's something about this that rings very true to me, that, that at some point we're going to have to find some new alliance between this, the, these fields, these scientific fields and the, the awe-inspiring expertise and progress made in these areas. Uh, but how that functions in the fields of ethics, morality... And because it seems to me that from your writing that you have a deep interest in philosophy and uh, cybernetics and social systems, that would is that true? yeah, no, that's yeah. absolutely right. And I mean, I, th- I think your point is very well made. It sort of, uh, reminds me of as well of C.P. Snow's two cultures and this, this sort of idea that the sciences are on one side and, and the arts and the humanities and and social sciences are, are on the other. And I think this has been a very unfortunate division of of academic activity and that especially when we talk about the sciences of the mind and the sciences of life these are clearly intertwined with our our roles in society and how we see ourselves as participants as individuals as actors as agents in these in these larger contexts and um yeah there's a very sort of unfortunate perspective on science which is i think partly the fault of many scientists themselves it's trying to either uh, position themselves as a high priest of facts that, that they can bestow on, on, on an otherwise ignorant population. Um, and this idea that goes along with this, that I think you mentioned it earlier, that we're chasing the residue of mystery further away and that therefore you know, we're draining our lives of the romance of the unknown and of the mysterious and of, of, of meaning. And I actually think the opposite is is true empirically in, in science. And every major advance in science, if thought of the right way, and if you think about how it must have felt at the time, would have been accompanied by an increase in awe and a sort of an increase in the space of mystery too. So I like to think of, of, of knowledge, whether it be scientific knowledge or philosophical knowledge or knowledge about sociology as sort of an expanding sphere the surface area of it gets bigger but then the stuff around it sort of gets bigger too there's more there's there's more everything that you know opens many new questions uh, and the more that we know about biology and about the brain in one sense the more mystery there there is there are more things still to to figure out we get to more fine-grained and, and detailed and powerful questions we can answer again not, rather than saying yeah it's this bit of the brain that generates consciousness we start to ask you know, more just more detailed, um, fine-grained questions, um, but we also see ourselves as more part of the rest of nature, which is, I think, the other point you were hitting: that the idea that science somehow uh, embeds an alienation from others, from society, from politics, from the world around, and especially from the natural world. And of course, our relationship with the natural world is of key importance right now, um, with the attention to climate change in particular. You know, without making a political point here, every major step in how we see the uh, humanity's place in nature has led to us being more part of it than apart from it. So if you go back to Copernicus, you know, we used to think, people used to think they were at the centre of the universe. And then it turns out we're not. We're just on this piece of rock somewhere out in the unfashionable western spiral arm of the galaxy, you know, a pale blue dot in the abyss. So we're not at the center. We're, and then the universe just seems grander and more awe-inspiring because of that. Uh, and then Darwin and, and life. You know, we are related to all other living creatures. And the history of life goes back not just a couple of thousand years or 6,000 years, 
but billions of years, and we're related to an octopus, to a sea slug. I mean, that to me, again, is a decentralization of hum human arrogance from the center of everything, a dethronement, but it also increases the awe and wonder that we can feel in the world around us. And I really think the same thing applies now uh, in neuroscience, that the more we understand about consciousness and about what it means to be a self, again, we'll start to see ourselves as less apart from and distinct from and above or superior to the rest of nature and more part of it in ways which will become increasingly clear. So I think science is on, on the right side of uh, this this long arc of intellectual realignment it, yeah i like that it could do that and uh, i feel that um when i was saying about like uh, i don't feel a sort of a romantic pang for mystery i feel that uh, i suppose i've been more impacted by the with something you touched upon the idea of a kind of superciliousness and hubris from some thinkers and orators undergirded by scientific knowledge in claiming theological territories and metaphysical territories as their own and and this um sense that we are of nature I mean, in a way, you could re-instantiate the idea that we are somehow superior by the virtue of the fact that we are consciously observing it in a manner in which no other life form appears to be. We're calculating it and measuring it, which is an odd way of reasserting this kind of supremacy. And the other thing I wanted to touch upon in it is that, that it doesn't seem that this the progress of knowledge is being alchemized into wisdom in that we are not acting on this oh wow we're part of nature well let's stop treating it as a resource then <laughs> that doesn't seem to be you know and, and and that i would say is because in a way the sort of taxonomies that we have created around these disciplines are if not arbitrary they are certainly to a degree subjective and there is an individual in, invisible ideology that's beneath the sort of momentum or motion of power that prevents understanding about our the, the, the our symbiotic relationship with the plant world and the animal animal world from being acted upon we still continue to regard it primarily as a commodity and where does the idea of commodity come from and how do those ideologies become dominant and how do we challenge those ideologies so in a way i suppose just to check in with what my perspective is is because it's something we briefly discussed at the beginning of this I'm continually think, trying to mine from people that know more than I will ever be able to understand in their field of expertise what can I take from here that will be useful to me as I try to propagate an idea of or, or oneness kindness compassion so I'm, I'm and I'm trying to sort of find the right vocabulary and the right ideas and there's much of what you've said that's very useful yeah that's there's I mean, it's definitely a tricky problem to have. Uh, I like the, the idea of alchemization of knowledge into wisdom. I mean, that that is certainly a big challenge. And I think it's also true that the reason that's become very problematic is because of the fractionation of science into very specific disciplines and sub-disciplines. And when I was starting out uh, wondering what I was going to do with my life, that was one of my main concerns about going into science was that I sort of had this idea that the trajectory would be towards ever greater specialization and that there would come a point where I would know more than anybody about something that nobody else cared about at all. Mm -hmm. And that was just not very appealing. But that was sort of the way 
you know, science is communicated as a as an enterprise um, to kids when they're in school, when you when you're growing up at early stages, and it's been a real kind of pleasure that it, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, for some people it still is, and for some people that might be absolutely fine, and there's still a need for some parts of science to be very uh, firewalled from everything else, and you really drill down to something specific, but. There is now the space, and maybe that's because we have you know, the internet, we have ways, ways of sharing information, talking across walls that we didn't have before. It's, it's not necessarily this fractionation that has to happen. And, and, and when you're tackling a problem like consciousness, you, you, you find yourself just inevitably drawn to a more integrative perspective where you've got to take into account philosophical perspectives, sociological perspectives all different kinds of science whether it's from physics to, to biology to psychology um and then unexpected ramifications out into sociology as well and again i mean i i find myself worried about this sometimes because i can't claim to have any particular expertise in most of these most of these disciplines uh, but there's still a job to do in at least having a vague view of the landscape and of trying to make the connections that exist and at least it raises these questions that, that cross disciplines and if I were to, were to be optimistic the last 20 years in science I think have become a lot more interdisciplinary you see a lot more collaboration across disciplines and that I think is is very very promising it gives us new ways of communicating new ways of talking doesn't solve the problem of how people translate knowledge into wisdom and, and wisdom into action and you know, one of the problems we're, we're facing right now is the general suspiciousness of of facts and of experts and um this is certainly this is certainly not helpful i mean i would i would absolutely love it for evidence-based reasoning to play a stronger role in in everything uh, that we do you know not to the exclusion of of having individual theological philosophical perspectives but clearly making decisions and making performing actions on the basis of evidence and reason would quite often be very helpful i suppose this suspicion comes from the fact that i don't know about most but significant public facing sciences have been co-opted by the corporate world as as everything as as entertainment as as sport only certain questions are asked only certain scientific experiments are undertaken and only evidence that is useful is published and i suppose that what that may have created and I, I wouldn't imagine that it's as articulate as this but uh, probably it's more uh, emotional is a sense that we can't trust people we can't they're giving us information so when it's like oh, the, the the economic evidence suggests xyz although economics is a field of science in itself is something that can be questioned in it it's not meteorology but like like um that I, I kind of understand it. I kind of understand why that people have, you know, I, I oscillate between being a kind of, not a Luddite, because I love technology, I love science, I love knowledge and I love information. But I sometimes feel that because of the progress that can easily be marked and tracked in fields such as yours and medicine and technology and AI, etc., that it has 
being used to underwrite the idea that we're progressing more broadly when I think in many areas we've stagnated or even regressed when it comes to the way we treat one another and our understanding of our perspective and our role particularly in the yeah past I mean it could be I'm I still it, it, it so much depends on on who you listen to doesn't it I think there's there is a, a there's a very prevalent narrative of things getting worse at the moment whether it's to do with the climate whether it's to do with politics um, it feels like for many people it feels like things are getting worse in their lives or for their hopes for the future in general in general and then you have people like Steven Pinker who say no everything's getting better you know we haven't the number of people dying in war is way down life expectancy all over the world is going up and you can see all these lovely graphs and it really does seem like things are are getting better it's incredibly difficult to have you know a bird's eye view of, of what's actually happening so and the truth is i'm I'm sure it's it's very mixed. Some things are getting better, some things are not. Some things really need to be paid attention to. The real danger, I think, is if we buy into either of these extremes with a sense of complacency. You know, everything's getting worse and there's nothing we can do about it, or everything's getting better. What are you worried about? Neither of these perspectives motivate action, and action in some contexts is clearly necessary. And I think that this creation of... Uh, apathy and inertia is a significant factor in why these sort of mutually disabling philosophies have become so uh, prevalent, you know, i.e. apocalyptic uh, nemesis naysaying on one side and Human beings have never had more electronic toothbrushes <laughs> than they have in 2019. Yeah. <laughs> With a, like, I mean, I've got at least three. <laughs> yeah, I've got hundreds of the bloody things, different colour heads. But like, um, so yeah, it is challenging. Can mm. we um, be, uh, leap into some of your personal life? How come you became a neuroscientist then? What was you, what was you like when you was a little lad? <laughs> I was, I was, I was definitely a little lad. I was. I grew up in South Oxfordshire, so not too far from where we are, where we are now, actually, and. Um, I was just, you know, I didn't start out at school with any particular ambition to be a scientist. Though I was not particularly good at school until some, about halfway towards the end of it. Uh, and then I just kind of got interested when I went to university about, in, in the same way that a lot of people, when they're 16, 17, they go to the pub and they start talking about these big questions. You know, where, how did the universe start? What's free will? What's consciousness? And then most people move on to do something more sensible with their lives. And I just continued down this track, really, and always kept thinking that at some point someone's going to tell me to stop and, and go do something else. But now, 25, 28 years later, uh, no one's told me to stop yet. I think that's the most honest answer of how come I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. But when I was an undergrad, yeah, I didn't do neuroscience, did psychology, I did physics first and then psychology, and, and started to to realize that the different disciplines had different things to say about this problem of consciousness. I was also just very lucky in that this was the early, early to mid 1990s. And this was exactly the time where consciousness was being coming back on the table as a legitimate subject that you could study. You know, some of my early professors had warned me off it and said, that's there's no jobs there. You'll just, you know, there's nothing to do there. It's philosophy or religion. Uh, steer clear. Go and do something like train rats to pull levers in different ways, and that's how you do psychology. But then there were others, and you learn a lot that way too. I don't want to kind of 
dismiss that that aspect of psychology but it's certainly not first and foremost about consciousness it did become to be rehabilitated in the early mid 90s and then i was just i really feel i was very fortunate that i went from undergraduate to to sussex where i am now for my phd and learned there a lot about philosophy of mind and about cybernetics and computer science you know, not in the way that, that sort of allows you to go and make any money with these things, but in a way that, that actually just provides different ways of thinking about what do we mean when we say the brain's a computer, for instance. The brain is not a computer, but information processing is a very useful way to, to think about certain systems. Uh, but the real break was I, I moved to San Diego in 2001, um, which was wonderful in all sorts of ways. Uh, but it was one of the places where consciousness was being actively studied and researched by prominent neuroscientists and neuroscience groups there. And I worked for a, a Nobel Prize winner called Gerald Edelman, who was a bit of a difficult character, but he was incredibly generous with his time with the people that worked with him and mentored me there for quite a few years. And eventually I came back and, and set up a lab at, at Sussex. And we do in the lab, we don't just do consciousness research we you know we do sort of other areas of psychology and, and and science as well but that's still that's still the main focus what are you doing in your lab and what's in there <laughs> what's well, all sorts of all sorts Scanning of scary things. machines is there are you, t- are you looking at materials what's happening what's happening in lab so we yeah we have a, a lot of the standard toys and tools of cognitive neuroscience so we have brain imaging equipment you can look inside your mind uh, can't read it, but you know we can measure activity of neurons and brain regions while people do things. Uh, then we also have a virtual reality lab, and this I've found very interesting over the last few years, that virtual reality has been improving as a technology, and it allows us to systematically uh, manipulate, generate, control people's experiences in a much richer way than we can do otherwise. What are you doing in there? So for instance, we can we can give people experiences of, of what their body is. So one of the one of the key things that I really want to understand is what does it mean to experience being a self? You know, what is it what does that really mean? It's very easy to give a trite answer to that and say, yeah, well I'm I'm Anil and that's that's what it is to be me. I have a set of memories and that's me, right? I am the thing that does the perceiving of the world around me. But the view that that I'm moving to, and not just me, a lot of others, is that the self is not uh, the thing that does the perceiving. The self is another perception. So I'm the experience of me is generated on the fly in exactly the same way that the experience of the bowl of grapes on the table between us is generated. And part of the experience of self is is what in the world is my body? You know, I'm putting my arm out in front right now. And, I naturally experience this as part of me rather than not part of me. But just because I, it's so intuitive doesn't mean there's nothing to explain there. And for instance, there are people with various neurological conditions who don't experience their limbs as being theirs or who experience the converse, who experience somebody else's limb as being theirs, which is a particularly weird one uh, called somatoparaphrenia, where people extend their sense of body ownership onto others. Um, <laughs> very odd i've got that um, <laughs> but but no people and you know people will do all sorts of weird things to try to make sense of these odd experiences um and uh, more prosaically we can use virtual reality to model some of these experiences 
in, a, in an experimentally controllable way. We can give people virtual arms, we can change the properties of these arms, how they relate to what they do, and, and then we can start to see under what conditions people experience the limbs as being theirs. And if the limb makes an action, for instance, do they experience it as their action or as not their action? So we can begin to pick apart different ways in which we always construct our experience of, of selfhood. Whoa. Like, because that has an interesting parallel in some scriptural doctrine that the self is a construct, that we are the experiencer, but that, that they are invited in some meditative practices that I use to continue to recede to a point of, you know, you talked about a, a, oblivion elsewhere, that to a point of yeah, what, where is the exact interface between nothingness and somethingness? Yeah. And I, I'm very interested from a number of perspectives, really, of like the the, the way that we construct ourselves. Like you said, if memory is extracted, who are we? If sensory experience is extracted, who are we? And where do you get that information that the self is a construct in the same way that sensory information, such as the apparently external world is constructed what what how do you measure that I, well we can measure it in a lab in a number of ways but just to step back for I, I think it really does align with a lot of insights from some of the spiritual traditions especially those that emphasize the impermanence of the self um, i'm thinking more of the the buddhist tradition here and one of the unexpected pleasures of, of working on this stuff has been the interaction with people from the Buddhist tradition. It turns out there's quite a long history of Buddhist scholars coming together with neuroscientists to uh, explore these sorts of common questions and um, to look in particular at what the meditative state has to say about these conditions. Because there are different kinds of of oblivion, I think that, that I mean, there's the oblivion of general anesthesia, but there's also the ego dissolution that people report in some meditative states and also in some psychedelic states too, where it's not that there's a complete absence of experience in the same way there is under anesthesia, but the experience of the self within the sphere of experience is altered and changed and perhaps dissolved, and that you know that's an empirical data point. From, from subjective experience that the self is constructed and that's I think an extremely important insight when we start to think well if it's constructed how is it constructed you know, what are what are the brain circuits involved and how do they explain the different aspects of what being a self is and in just the same way again back to this analogy with life just that if something's alive there are many different properties a living system has you know, being a self is not this unitary essence of soul. I mean, they're, they're, we've already talked about the body as being experience of the body as part of self, having memories as part of self, experiencing actions as freely willed is another part of self. Having a first-person perspective is also a part of self. And all of these things can come apart in different ways. And we get into the territory a little bit of Oliver Sacks here in psychiatry. I mean, all these individual case studies and phenomena where individual parts of selfhood can splinter away while the rest are left and these two are insights that being a self is constructed and it's it's compositional many many different things going on 
and beginning to kind of unwrap that now with the with the other tools that we have from from science to figure out okay how do we generate explain model these different ways of experiencing being a self um i think for me anyway personally they they probably deliver some of the same revelations that a long-term meditator might get and i'm not claiming it's exactly the same i haven't got the discipline to do meditation properly i've tried it a few times dabbled but doesn't really respond to dabbling um but to have a kind of baked in understanding of the constructed compositional and impermanent nature of self is the sort of understanding that i think you see convergence between many different traditions and a Again, it's the kind of understanding that makes us feel more continuous with nature rather than separate from it. That's cool, man. Why won't you meditate? I get, I, I'm still at this stage, I just get massively bored and frustrated. And I, I was, I've been to a few, I was at a meditation neuroscience retreat in, in New York, in upstate New York earlier this year, where I was giving a lecture to, at the beginning. And then I did join the, the morning and evening meditation sessions every day but these were guided meditations and i just this particular case i found them the guiding too intrusive um but then when there's not enough guiding i just i i you know i can begin to see yeah i'm having a thought and i'm aware i'm having the thought just let it go and observe the thought uh but then i i get a bit fidgety i still mean um, some of my colleagues who work on consciousness as well have been meditating uh, for many many years and certainly attest to to its benefits but it seems to be something that's highly individually variable i think there's a bit of a boosterism about meditation in the same way there is about psychedelics these days as well i'm sure it's a good thing in general but i'm not sure it's necessarily the best thing for everyone have you done any scans of meditating minds and such uh not in my lab but there's plenty of work out there that has and there's a sort of there are two strands of this which I think are interesting. One is looking at what happens in kind of, let's say, normal people as they go through and maybe an eight-week meditation course to see if there what changes and, and if any of these changes last uh, in the long term. And there's not a huge amount specific, at least that I can remember right now, to say about this apart from the fact that there are changes. You know, meditation does seem to alter patterns of activity in the brain and maybe even over the long term after you've gone through this course and then there are the other sorts of uh, more like case studies so taking expert meditators with tens of thousands of hours of meditation experience and trying to compare to see what's different in their uh, in their brains compared to you know somebody else of the same age and and so on um my there's a guy i, I met a few years ago really lovely guy called Mathieu ricard who he wrote a book called happiness and more recently altruism and he's a Dalai Lama's French translator and a, a monk, um, but he used to be a molecular biologist. And we were at, we were at, in France at a, a meeting together on these topics, and he was doing experiments where um, he was trying to uh, compare brain activity when he was engaged in a sort of compassionate form of meditation. Um, sort of levels of different levels of loving compassion he would try to instantiate in his mind, and as a control for that. The experimenters asked him to imagine gradations of levels of disgust 
Uh, <laughs> and he was thinking how to do this. And I just always remember, it's like, well, I thought about it. And I thought the only way I can do that was imagine myself being lowered into a chemical toilet, you know, to different degrees. <laughs> wow. I never expected that. Yeah, look how he's having to deploy he, yeah. all his experiences as a meditator. Imagine exactly. himself into the dirge, into the deluge. Mm, that's interesting. Well, that was a great first part of the conversation with Professor Anil Seth. Did you love it? If you did, you've got to listen to the next part. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. If you're in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, get to my website and see me in February and March, right in the middle of your country with Recovery Live, a beautiful experience of comedy, personal development and well-being. And let's go right ahead and call it healing, live healing. People will be sobbing. People will be laughing. People will be sick into their handbags. It's going to be a hell of a night. Follow me on all my social media sites. Thank you very much. I love you. Goodbye.